today's topical study is going to be about apologetics, sort of a intro to apologetics, and this is going to be something that we're going to do continually, or more of like there's going to be more sessions about apologetics. You can't really cover it all in a one go round. It's um, it's definitely a large subject, but. Uh, Josh is going to be taking us through introduction to apologetics, and he's going to do so now after he prays for us, and he's going to get into the meat and potatoes of it. So I'll hand it off to Josh, and we can uh, we can get started. All right. Well, let me pray, and we'll begin. Lord, we are thankful for your word and the certainty that we could have of its truth, the knowledge that we can have of you, that you have revealed uh, through all that you have made and all that you have spoken. Help us to see that clearly and to honor you above all else whenever we attempt to think because all thinking is meant to think your thoughts after you. However, miserly we can grasp such amazing and high and categorically different uh, things, such as what you think and what you have made and how you understand the world you've made. Help us in this endeavor, for that is the only way that it will be successful. For your glory and praise, I pray. Amen. Okay. So, this is going to be a multi-part series, so if you miss a week, I would highly recommend, this is the first week, so no worries today, but if you miss a week and come back on the third week or the fourth week, I would highly recommend going back and listening to the one you missed. Uh, They are being recorded if Justin's recording um, and will be posted on the podcast and all the different links that are related to that uh, because they are going to build off each other and I won't have the time and space to recap everything every week. So keep that in mind. And I'll say that at the beginning every week, at least briefly. Hey, go back and listen if you haven't. Um, and, and the reason for that is because this is a subject that requires more treatment than I've given it in the past. I've done this here and there uh, before. And as some of you have seen, done some real-time apologetics, not perfectly by any means, but um, the reason I kind of want to do this is a lot of you who frequently come to the Bible studies are also the most frequently frequent people in the server. And we've had some crazy folks coming through here lately. <laughs> Don't know if you noticed. Um, and some things you all have done excellent in handling. And I'm not saying you've done poorly in others, but some of them you just didn't catch that it was sometimes straight up heresy um, or, or just very dangerous uh, ideas and doctrines. And I'm not, you know, hounding the server every minute of the day to, uh, to check in on things or, or to help out with all of that. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, part of the reason and the occasion for this. The other side is that it is 
something that is not taught often in churches. It's not often something that you get trained to do or discipled in. And yet many of you, if you're not already at college, you may be going to college, or even if you go to a trade school, believe it or not, this will be helpful. Uh, you will run into in your life, uh, actually, especially if you go to a trade school and work in one of those fields, the amount of unbelievers um, don't be. I actually agree with your take there, <laughs> to be honest. It's not, I don't feel singled out. Um, it was just conversation happened. Uh, whatever you end up doing uh, as a profession, or if you already have one, uh, you will encounter and engage with unbelievers at some level. And significantly, you will engage with unbelief in your own heart. Apologetics will help you with that. So that is part of the reason for this. The other part. So to start, I, some of you may not know, so let me answer the question. What is apologetics? What is it? The word itself derives from a old Greek word, as many words do. Apologia or apologia, depending on who you ask. And the word simply, it, it implies a defense. Uh, specifically, it would be used in regards to a legal defense. So it, it's a, uh, a a very well thought out, reasoned defense of something. So we're not just doing apologetics. We're attempting to do Christian apologetics. We're attempting to defend the faith of Christianity against those who would attempt to tear it down, attack it, disprove it, etc. Now, you don't want to get it confused. We're, we're not apologizing for our faith. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, and we're not even purely defending the faith with defense. Uh, as it has been said, one of the best defenses is a good offense. And we'll get into that a little later. And there is a manner in which we need to conduct ourselves in apologetics, but I will cover that next time, most likely. And that will be a specific biblical text. Today, I just want to talk about the substance of it. What is it? And why is it important? So apologetics is a defense of the faith, and Christians have been doing it since the early church. Uh, one of our earliest examples is the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill or the Areopagus, depending on what you want to call it, uh, uh, in, in the city of Athens in Greece. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It's there. I won't take the time to read the whole account here, but he is surrounded by folks and they're saying, hey, defend your position. And this is a very Greek thing. Uh, you are bringing a new philosophy, a new religion to our city. Well, we're going to put you on, put your belief on trial and you need to defend it. And the Bible encourages us to, to do this both by example and by command. And we'll look at that command next time. Uh, it's 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. If you're curious, you can go look it up. But this is not something that we do uh, in kind of, it's not offensive to the faith or dem demonstrable of a lack of belief to defend the faith. Uh, there is two kinds of, of kind of position, extreme positions out there um, when it comes to apologetics. And we're not taking a middle way. We're taking what I think is a biblical way. Uh, but the two extremes are fideism and evidentialism. And, and, and uh, 
fideism is, is faithism, quite literally, um, which is to say that uh, someone would 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 argue that you you need to close your eyes and believe, and never have any kind of reasons for believing. Uh, never have any kinds of of reasons for believing or uh, thoughtfulness to your faith. You just have to ignore all rational thought, ignore reason. Reason is, in fact, the enemy of faith. And just believe. And that's it. And if you try to use any kind of reasonableness, argumentation, evidence of any kind, then you are demonstrating a lack of faith. And you are even in danger of not having any faith at all. Uh, any kind of saving faith that would be the the strongest version of that and, and and there are different degrees of it but that's the strongest kind that's a, again these are extremes on the other end you have an, a purely evidential approach and this approach would say that uh in that everybody needs to subject christianity and all of its truth claims to external investigation popular books exist out there of people doing this the most common one you may have heard of or read or seen the movie the case for christ lee strobel uh there's also cold case christianity uh i think it's jay warner wallace if i'm not mistaken there's these strong versions now they usually don't actually come to faith through their investigations in those kind of first-hand account stories i think lee strobel's is not even even through that but when they go to present the faith afterwards, that's how they do it is, hey, look, you, you can go and investigate all of it according to these religious. This is the significant part. According to religiously neutral standards. According to scientific standards, according to historical standards that that do not have any kind of religious claims tied up in them. You can examine the, the truth claims of Christianity according to those standards and come to the conclusion that Christianity is true via that philosophical or historic or scientific investigation. That is the strongest side of evangelism. We're not going to either of those. Um, for the following reasons. So, why not? Well, uh, on the one hand, the faithism, the fideism, uh, is not correct because because the uh, the Bible does not tell us to do that. There's there's that side of it. Um, but also, so that's sometimes the argument is the Bible tells you to to just close your eyes and believe. No, it doesn't. Um, and they'll, they'll quote Hebrews eleven. I forget the first number out of context that says faith is. Uh, you know, certainty of things unseen, and they'll try to use that to argue for it. That's not what that verse is about, but we'll digress, not digress yet into that area. So we're not going there because if your faith is disconnected from reason, science, and history, then what are you believing in? What are you believing in? On the other hand, 
if your faith is grounded in a supposed neutral position, then you are discounting the claims that the Bible makes on over and on all of those areas of thought. So that, that's the thing that's wrong with the other side is you're claiming that you had a neutral position before God and were able to neutrally investigate the religious cl- truth claims Christianity from the perspectives of science, history, and reason, and that God has no claims over those and that you were able to do those properly without a Christian worldview. The problem is the Lord Jesus stakes his claim over every area of your life. And that includes reason, science, history. Every area of thought, every area of wisdom and knowledge, Jesus says, that's mine. That doesn't belong to some neutral party. There is no middle ground. You are either an enemy of God or you are a friend of God. There is no neutrality in the world. There is pretended neutrality, and then there is open hostility, and then there is peace with God. And that's it. And the pretended neutrality will lead you into a rejection of Christianity. It will not lead you to the truth because it starts from the wrong presuppositions. So, this leads us into the area of of worldview thinking. And that's what I mean there. There's no neutral position from which to begin because Christianity is a... uh, comprehensive worldview. It covers every area of life. It covers every area of thought. And you cannot suspend some kind of neutral position in midair and then investigate Christianity because it is, it, it's a whole system. So, so you, you're not going to find the truth of it by using an external standard because Christianity claims to be the ultimate and final defining position over every area of life. This is why Christianity comes to battle so often with philosophy. And what is philosophy? Well, I I actually have a degree in that, um, my undergrad degree. And as uh, our good friend Jungleham pointed out, it's a bit of a waste of time. Um, However, I can with some authority, say something about it. <laughs> um, and, and this is the, the most prominent area where people find comfort in their unbelief is within philosophy. And the reason they do that is because philosophy claims in, in many of its enterprises uh, to have been, to, to be able to either reduce knowledge to skepticism or to refute Christianity entirely, to show that it is an inherently irrational or contradictory system. And no worries. There is no uh, offense taking a dump on uh, undergraduate education. Most of it's a joke. It's not mean at all. (laughs) I actually appreciate uh, that outlook far more now having been through it, Uh, especially in the liberal arts area like philosophy. So no worries. It's actually very helpful. Uh, okay. So philosophy is, uh, breaking the word down. It is the love of not, uh, of knowledge or wisdom. So, uh, phileo is the Greek word for a, a, a brotherly love 
and Sophia is the word for wisdom. So philosophy is the love of wisdom. However, philosophy as a discipline is more about the pursuit of a comprehensive worldview, a knowledge about the world that is uh, able to be justified, verified at some level, and, and then you're able to carry it out and, and live in the world according to it. So, philosophy covers three basic overarching areas within a worldview. Your basic components of a worldview are metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology. Now, metaphysics gets its name, oddly enough, from uh, one of Aristotle's books. Aristotle is uh, one of the kind of pillars of philosophical thought. He is a student of Plato, who is in many ways the originator of Greco, uh, kind of Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy. Aristotle comes after him and really refines a lot of Plato's thinking and systematizes it in a way that is digestible and really is the foundation of a lot of things a lot of people even believe today and they don't even know they get it from Aristotle. Uh, part of that is because the medieval church uh, rediscovered Aristotle and used his thinking in their highest education. So, yeah, there's that. That was a mistake, by the way. But uh, in one of Aristotle's central texts, he has a chapter called Metaphysics. It literally just means after physics. It was the chapter that came after the chapter that was called Physics. But it was the content of the chapter called Metaphysics that then became how we define metaphysics now. And uh, the content, what was about what is the world? What is, what is the stuff that makes it up? Uh, what is out there? What is the major central uh, kind of teleology, the, the point? What is the point of, of everything? Why is there stuff? This is all the big philosophical questions that, that people speculate on in esoteric ways. That's kind of your, your area of metaphysics is, is all that stuff. And I, I'm kind of broad in including a lot of things in there. And that's because a lot of people can't agree on what metaphysics really is. So there's that. Um, so there's your metaphysics. Now your ethics, well, that's ethics. That is what is right and wrong. What ought I to do in any given situation? Or is there an ought? Is there an ought? Is there a moral obligation upon us as humans in the universe? Uh, and, and what standard do we appeal to when thinking about what is right and what is wrong? It's kind of your, your ethical, it's, and then thinking concretely about specific ethical questions. So if you take an introduction to ethics class in college, for example, you will deal with things like euthanasia and abortion. As an example, um, maybe they might not even bring those up anymore, <laughs> depending on where you are, if it is a settled question. Um, but when I was in a you know school in in Georgia where you got a lot of folks from generally conservative uh grew up christian you know southern baptisty style homes the professors loved to just rile them up by bringing up and arguing for abortion in the intro class that everyone had to take you know um but that's ethics, deals with questions of right and wrong, and then these standards and justifications of morality as well. It's not just the concrete, but also the universals. 
And then finally, you have epistemology. And, and the word can Greek words, episteme, uh, is to know. Uh, how do we know? What do we know? What can we know? And by what standards can we verify or justify our knowledge? Epistemology. So these three basic areas of philosophy, when cobbled together, comes in uh, forms a worldview. And whether you are self-aware about it or not, all of you are philosophers because you all have basic answers to those kinds of questions. You do. Even if you haven't thought about them much, or if you haven't thought about them very clearly in a long time, or you know, it's never crossed your mind at all to think about uh, the, the metaphysics of, the hu of human nature or, or other things uh, like that, um, you have answers to them. Because you live in a certain way. We all live according to our basic worldview assumptions. That's what worldviews are for. They're used to live in the world. So, uh, whether you realize it or not, you are a philosopher at some level. You have a worldview. You have answers to metaphysical, ethical, and epistemological questions. And this is why the philosophers and the apologists go to war so often, is because ultimately Christianity is a comprehensive worldview. It makes claims over every area of life, Meta the metaphysics of life, the ethics of life, and the epistemology of life, what we know, what there is, and how we ought to live. Let me, let me put those in the right order. <laughs> what there is, metaphysics, how we ought to live, ethics, and what we know, epistemology, and how we know. So let me demonstrate that with some Bible verses, because that's significant, because ultimately, the Christian worldview is grounded and rooted in the revelation of God. If it is not, it is not a Christian worldview any longer. It is a different worldview. And it will automatically be at war with the Christian worldview. If you've been following along with Justin's study in Romans, then you will know this. Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 are all about how the unbeliever is not neutral before God. They have, in their hearts, rejected God and are at warfare with him, and their minds have been corrupted as well. Their foolish hearts are darkened. So they are foolish and darkened. <laughs> um, so, so they're evil and they have lost proper knowledge and wisdom. And they've replaced it with idolatry. So uh, Christ is Lord over metaphysics, over all that there is. Why? Because he made it. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. If you didn't know it already, you need to know it. It's one of my favorites. So I'm not, <laughs> it's not just because I'm biased and it's one of my favorite verses. One of my favorite ch uh, chapters and one of my favorite books. I'm a little biased. <laughs> But uh, Colossians 1.16, easy to remember. Uh, anything with 16 on it is easy to remember because we all know John 3.16. And if you don't know John 3.16, then I'm sorry for using a universal there because um, I know that not everybody knows it, but a lot of people do. If, they're not, if, they don't even, if they don't know what it says, they're familiar with the reference. 
so it's easy to remember. Colossians 1.16. This establishes both the creator, God as creator, Christ as creator significantly, because the him there is, is Jesus. The specific reference is Jesus. He created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, just in case he was unclear, Paul clarifies over and over. Here's when I say all things, here's what I mean. Everything. All things were created through him and for him. And that answers our deepest metaphysical questions about the world. What is there? Why is there? And what's it all for? Right there in a single Bible verse, in a single sentence. What is there? There's heaven and earth. There's visible and invisible. So there's material world. There's immaterial world. Uh, there are thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. There are nations. God has established them. Uh, the, the, the collectives of the peoples, God establishes them. Um, he established the heavens and the earth. He established the visible and the invisible. And why were they made? They were made for him. For him. The, the, the telos, the teleology, the purpose of all things, their end, their point, their goal, is to the service and glory of the creator that made them. So Christ is Lord over metaphysics. He has answered all of our deepest metaphysical questions. Secondly, he is Lord of ethics. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. This is in the midst of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous sermons in the history of the world, rightly so. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, once your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know that the righteousness that we as described in verse 20, is an alien righteousness. It is a foreign righteousness. It is not ours, but it comes by faith in Christ, and it is his righteousness and his alone that allows us to enter the kingdom of heaven that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. But significantly, he does say in verse 19, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's not kidding about that one. He's not kidding about verse 20 either. It's just that when he ups the ante there, that's we we recognize that we can't attain to that, and we have to receive that externally from him. However, he does say he didn't he didn't abolish the law; he came to fulfill or establish it. So what that means is that that he is saying, and all the Sermon on the Mount is full of what? It's full of ethical commands. So Jesus gives us ethical man, commands from the mountaintop, just as. Yahweh did to Moses, but it is not, he doesn't come down the mountain. He sits on top of it. Moses receives it from the mountain and comes down. There's a mediator. Moses is the mediator of the law to the people. Jesus just sits on the mountain and goes and starts talking. 
And so he is establishing himself as Lord over ethics, Lord over right and wrong. He gets to tell us how we ought to live. Sermon on the Mount is full of here's how you ought to live. Okay. It's Jesus, Lord over ethics. Finally, he is the Lord over epistemology, over what we know. Colossians chapter 2. told you that was my favorite book. Colossians chapter 2. Uh, so I'll start in verse 1 because there's a little bit of a context thing. It's the middle of a sentence, but place that I want to focus on. Uh, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you want full assurance of understanding, certainty about the world and what you know and all that is in it, and if you want the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, where must you go? To Christ. And only to Christ. Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 1.7 is another helpful verse for this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. So only a right understanding of God, a right relationship to God, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning, the starting point of knowledge, not the end point. And that is where we significantly depart from, and that's the reason why we depart from the evidential uh, perspective the one extreme we spoke of. The reason is because the Bible is clear. Christ makes a lordship claim over all areas of knowledge, metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology, every area that philosophy is traced down as the basic components of a comprehensive worldview. Jesus says, I own it. That's mine. I made it and I own it. And the only way to rightly understand those areas of the world is to one, have a right relationship to your creator, and then two, to learn of those things from him. Now, does that mean that the Bible contains the chemical compounds of hydrogen? No. And oxygen and things like that? No. However, the basic worldview that is required in order to get that plane off the ground the engine of the plane of science that lets it fly through the skies is contained in the Bible. And that's where we get to our basic biblical apologetic, which has two basic themes. In this war of worldviews between the philosophies of men and the Christian worldview, and that's what it is, it's warfare, Paul calls it that, uh, number of times jesus makes it clear if you're not with him you're his enemy etc etc romans 1 you guys if you haven't been there already go listen to justin's stuff on it um two basic themes to it one in your defense of the faith 
you have a point of contact with every single person, no matter what their worldview is. And that's one significant thing. You're both a creature created by God to live in his world. You're made in his, in God's image. And so you have an inescapable knowledge of your creator because you are a creature made by him. Because God made you, you have inescapable inherent knowledge of the world that, that he put you in and of the one who made you. That's what Romans 1 says. However, it says that you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's the problem. It's not that God hasn't given you enough evidence. It's that you're too sinful to see it. Your eyes are blind. Your ears have been stopped. You're interpreting the world according to your own standards and your own worldview and your own philosophy that you dreamed up and not according to God's. However, you don't live according to your own standards. You borrow from Christian ones to get by every day. You don't know that you're doing it explicitly. Just like many of you, you know, I informed you you're all philosophers because you have answers to those big questions. So does every person. And they live according to their basic answers. And some Christians have not unchristian answers to the basic questions, and they live accordingly. That's part. Of, that's what discipleship is. We don't just immediately ditch all of our our bad worldview assumptions when we become a Christian. We ditch significant ones, but we don't get rid of all of them. Discipleship is transforming your mind, renewing your mind, as Paul says in uh, Romans twelve, uh, and and you're renewing it according to the proper knowledge of God found in his word. So uh, that's what you're, you're rooting out the things, uh, the assumptions and presuppositions that you had about the world that were faulty and incorrect and replacing them with true and good ones and then figuring out how to live accordingly. Because we, what we find now is if we, if we live consistently with unbiblical beliefs about the world, it's painful because God didn't make us to live that way in his world. And when you kick against the goads, to use a biblical phrase, when, when you fight against the way God made the world to, to function, it hurts. And it hurts a lot. And we know that because sin is painful. Cause suffering. So the first thing we do in a biblical apologetic is we call Men and women to repent based upon the image of God in them and their inescapable knowledge of God. Secondly, we do an internal critique of the unbelieving worldview. What do I mean? Well, Christianity provides the basic foundational building blocks for all of reality. There is no other standard that is internally consistent and consistent with the external world. Both of those things are very important. Uh, a, a, a worldview, if it's true, needs to be both internally consistent and work. It's got to work in the world we live in. Christianity is the only one that does this. And so every other worldview can be reduced to absurdity. It is impossible for other worldviews to be true. Why? Because they will be found self-refuting if carried out consistently with their own claims about the world. And we'll give examples of this in the coming weeks. That might sound like a bold claim, and I realize it is. 
that Christianity is true in virtue uh, or in, in, in view of the impossibility of the contrary, that it is actually impossible for other worldviews to be correct simply because Christianity is necessarily true in order for other worldviews to be articulated, in order for the communication that we use to talk about an atheistic worldview, an animistic worldview, a polytheistic worldview, in order to even talk about those things, Christianity has to be true. In order for speech to be meaningful, Christianity must be true. In order for you to understand what I'm saying right now, Christianity has to be true. A bold claim. We will demonstrate in coming weeks because I'm already running out of time. So again, this is an introduction to the basic ideas we'll be unpacking further in the future. So, in summary, apologetics is a defense of the faith. And we defend the faith primarily in two primary ways. One, we call the unbeliever to repent, to come to a saving faith in Christ, recognizing that the Holy Spirit is the one who affects this in them. And we can use evidences and argumentation, but they have to be used in the right way. Because you have to use them alongside a, hey, you know, I've got tons of evidence for God. In fact, he's provided you with all the evidence you could ever want. Inescapable evidence. You have no excuse for not believing in him. The reason you don't believe is because you carry unbelieving assumptions in your heart, in your mind, that exclude the possibility of my evidence being interpreted properly to lead you to the right conclusions. But if we take your assumptions, your unbelieving ones, and carry them out consistently into every area of, of life, they fall apart. In fact, we couldn't even communicate right now. If you're right about the world, everything we're saying right now, absolutely meaningless, but it's not. You understand what I'm saying. I understand what you're saying. Christianity is true. And it has to be. It's possible for it not to be. Okay. Again, we'll go deeper into that. And uh, that's so hopefully you'll, uh, you'll come back as a result. I'm not going to answer all the questions related <laughs> tonight. Um, so let me pray and... We'll open for some questions about whatever. I'll try not to spoil too much with my answers for the future, but also give sufficiently satisfying answers. Because some questions that you might be having right now, I will answer in the future, but I don't want to leave that much suspense. All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you have established the world, and you made it, and that you are the purpose for which all things, including us, exist. Help us to honor you in our thinking, and in our doing, and in our knowing, and in the way that we see the wonderful world you have made. Amen. Amen. That was some... Uh... Some good stuff, Josh. Um, Very good. Now, we're going to be moving over towards the Q&A part. So, if you all have questions 
you can either put them in the chat or if you want to use your microphone, you can do that too. But, uh, you know, now's the time, now's the time to do that. Man, that um, that that must be a really good introduction for there to be no questions. Usually, some yeah, people uh, have, I have mean, questions. I I I've done that a lot. I've done that that this particular intro many times. So hopefully, I'm getting kind of good at it. Yeah, this is the one subject that I one am very passionate about, but two probably I, I've I've read the most in. Um, so hopefully, I I've I finally have learned how to give a proper introduction to the subject. <laughs> Hey, I think uh, I think everyone's just confident that their questions will be answered later at answer some point the, in time. Yeah, hey, hey, yeah. That, that's that's good. Um, and and what I'm going to do, I'm going to spoil myself here, um, and I'm going to post in the media section or Christian media. Where is it? There it is. This is a link to a uh, class taught by Greg Bonson. Um, Greg Bonson was one of the leading apologists of the last century. Uh, and he died early, um, of heart failure, um, in 1995 and his stuff has recently been released to the public for free. This is a college prep apologetics class. He taught, um, there's seven sessions in it. They're not in order on this page. Unfortunately, you'd have to, but it says one of seven, two of seven, etc. Um, if you want a better version of everything I'm going to say over the next next few weeks. Go listen to that. <laughs> um, so I'll just put that out there. Um, hopefully I'll be able to supplement it some and make application of it to uh, very specific religions and worldviews. We're going to do that later. Just uh, sharing this now. Um, I'm going to review some of the heresies that have trickled their way in over the last few weeks. Um, how do we apply this to those? How do we apply this to things like um, obscure beliefs that come along every now and then in your life? Like uh, kinism is a great example. That one's kind of crazy. That's out there. Uh, we'll go over that. We'll go over the major cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, um, what they believe and how, how do you take uh, this kind of worldview oriented apologetic and apply it to a, to belief systems that share a lot of a lot in common or appear to share a lot in common or even the bible with you things like that we'll 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 give some examples of of taking this out at the field a little bit um down the road as well so we'll be doing this for a few weeks on tuesday nights so um, maybe even bring in a Carriage. Maybe if I can convince Andrew to come in and and play play the part of of some of these some of these things that would uh, that would be hilarious. Andrew um, likes to tend to put on those roles for for the sake of teaching or learning. He did it yeah. all the time in Bible study. Yep. Um, so so maybe we can we can pull that off. But yeah. So that's uh no. There is another Bible study on Monday. That is one that Gustin here runs. 
and he's going through the book of Romans. If you can only make it to one, come to Monday because he is taking you through the Bible and helping you use it in your life. He's doing the discipleship thing in a way that is more rigorous and significant than what I'm doing. So go to that. Um, but if you can make it to both, why not both? Uh, yeah. So that's some of the stuff um, up in the future for Tuesday nights. Yeah. Um, coming after the apologetic stuff is going to be a deep dive into sanctification and the mortification of sin. Um, that will be that. Uh, what is that? You'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um, y'all can officially be unhostaged.